Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Nau mai haere mai ki tō tātou au huruhuri. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. This week, Aotearoa Science Agency Director Damien Christie brings us some stories to get us thinking about data. Where does data come from? How is it converted into information? And how can it be used or misused? And is there a plus side to the pandemic that leaves us all with a better understanding of the role of data and modelling in decision making? Here's Damien. When you venture on social media these days, doom scrolling as it's come to be known, it's unrecognisable from two years ago. A global pandemic will do that. But amid the debates and misinformation, the vaccination selfies and memes about day drinking, are more and more people sharing and discussing data. Graphs of population movements during lockdown, vaccine uptake rates by age, ethnicity and location, excess mortality statistics, And it's not just scientists sharing this. These days, it's Uncle Paul who's just as likely to share his thoughts on the current R value or an issue with the sample size on a study he's read. And while armchair epidemiologists aren't necessarily that helpful, there's also a group of people chanting the mantra, follow the science, like there's a giant machine with lights flashing and bleeps bleeping that just spits out the correct alert level settings whenever you press the solitary giant red button on its front. I mean, that's not actually what happens, right? Like the politicians take science and the data as one input um, in a you know pretty complicated decision-making process that includes accounting for the economy, accounting for social outcomes, accounting for politics and um, polls. A, a politician's decision can never be just the science. Dr Andrew Chen is an expert on many facets of data, from artificial intelligence to ethics and privacy. He's had a lot to say recently on the rollout of the COVID tracer app in New Zealand. So does he think the pandemic has helped people gain a better appreciation of the role of data in science? Data by in and of itself um, may not mean very much, um, but it comes down to how that data is being used. You know, I think the debates that we've had about modelling, for example, um, modelling is this area that is now much more in the public consciousness than it was a couple of years ago um, because it seems that the outputs of this modelling have significant consequences for um, our lives, you know, the choices that our politicians are making in terms of managing the pandemic. I don't think anybody believes that data and science is the be-all and end-all. You know, everyone says follow the science, but of course there are limitations to that. Nobody's going to say follow the science if the science tells you to do something that is completely antithetical to your values. Are there things that you think people are getting a better grasp of? You know, I saw someone on Twitter this morning, someone who doesn't have any background, presumably in stats or uh, data, saying, oh, look, it's obvious the R value is now above one. You know, that's not not something you would have expected a a layperson to have said uh, a couple of years ago, is it? Yeah, well, I think this also speaks to the 
um, ongoing democratization of access to information and education. 20, 30, 40 years ago, it would have been very difficult for your average person to suddenly become an armchair expert in epidemiology. Um, whereas today, you know, you can go online and you can learn a lot of this stuff um, if you want to. And, and then it's also about the communication that comes from our media and comes from our um, government and politics in terms of helping educate people about the important things. Short of outright misinformation, what are the most common mistakes that you see people make when they're trying to make their own analysis of the, of the data that's available? So, so there's lots of different schools of thought here, but there's data and then there's information. So you can take a whole bunch of raw data and put it in a spreadsheet and just give it to somebody. Um, and, and that data by itself is just a bunch of numbers that are probably not very meaningful. Um, once somebody has actually run some analysis on it or actually looked at the numbers and had to think about what they actually mean, then they can kind of turn that into some form of information that is actually usable and actionable. There, there, there is a level of interpretation in some cases in terms of converting that data into um, information. There's also choices that are being made around what is important and what isn't. Um, and those choices are informed by our underlying values and you know our hypotheses and what we're trying to find in that data. So sometimes the data in and of itself is not necessarily biased, but the people who are trying to analyze the data might be biased. Um, and so that's something that people need to be cognizant of. Um, it's not something that we can just you know, switch off and ignore but um, if, if we can be cognizant of it, then we can try and communicate that those biases or be mindful of um, those biases when we're receiving somebody else's interpretations. And there's lots of examples in the past where the, the actual collection of the data or the, or the integrity of the data itself is questionable based on the people that have been collecting it as well, right? Yeah, the people who have been collecting it and the reasons for why they've been collecting it. So if you think about in the past um, sort of censuses, for example, um, a choice to only collect data about um, British expats uh, versus, you know, intentionally not counting um, Māori in that data is an intentional choice. Um, and so that causes that data to have issues, um, whether, but, but, uh, well, depending on your perspective, right? So to the people who are collecting the data, they were quite happy with that outcome, um, but I'm sure others would have disagreed with that. Do you think we'll have a better understanding of the value of our own data, the value of, of, of these things and how they're collected and how they're used? Yeah, I think one of the tricky things for people is that we still don't really know or understand how much our data is worth at an individual level. It's obviously worth something to someone, right, because you know, companies like Facebook wouldn't collect it if it wasn't worth anything. It's really hard for individuals to really appreciate whether or not they're getting a fair deal out of that. Um, it's also presented to users as a take it or leave it kind of deal. There's no room for negotiation. And I think that there is a growing appreciation that this is perhaps a one-sided deal. Outside of uh, the pandemic, if it's possible to cast our minds yeah. to such, what sort of science is going on, you know, that's very, would you say, data heavy? What's the stuff that most excites you? I'm really interested in how the government might be able to use data to help address some of our broader societal challenges. Um, and so there's things like the integrated data infrastructure, which... I mean, for all its criticisms and potential weaknesses, like it is a very interesting and useful source of data that helps many government agencies answer all sorts of interesting and difficult questions. So the integrated data infrastructure is this centralized repository of all the data that government holds about people. Um, and so they 
got all of the data that used to be held in different departments and ministries and tried to collate it all together. Um, and so it's anonymous, but in theory, you can go in and you could find you know, the details of a particular person. You can get their um, educational background. You might be able to get their income. You might be able to get their um, job history. Now, of course, this is um, a bit creepy if you think that it's kind of open and anybody can use it. So um, it is very, very locked down. Um, there are strict restrictions on who can use it and how it can be used. Um, and all of the outputs are checked to make sure that nobody is identifiable in any of the outputs. So you can't find um, Andrew Chen. You wouldn't be able to look me up in the database. But uh, because there is individual legal data, um, they've been able to design interventions that uh, might be more effective at an individual level rather than in the past having to do that at a sort of mesh block or at a suburb or city level. Um, and so if I think of one example is uh, school deciles. Um, up until now, uh, school deciles are largely determined at the mesh block level. Um, but with these new models, we might be able to do it at an individual level, which might mean that um, you know people who actually need more funding in their schools to get them a better level of education will actually get it rather than people who just happen to live near um, people who need that help. Um, so it, it gives us a greater level of specificity in terms of directing those interventions um, in the right ways. Are you hoping that post-pandemic, uh, whenever that, that time comes, that people will come out, you know, will emerge with a, a better appreciation for data, a better understanding of, of how it's used and its role in decision-making? I think so. I think people are always learning. Um, and there's a lot of things that people need to care about um, and only so much brain space. Uh, I tend to think of it as people having different priorities for why they care more about some things than others. Um, and right now, with the pandemic data and science is pretty high in the list of priorities for most people. Um, and so they're putting the effort in to learn more about it. You know, some people will lose that interest because it is no longer relevant to them, but a lot of others will hopefully take that forward and continue to be engaged with how data is being used to make decisions that may affect their lives. One of the key pieces of information when you're evaluating research is the sample size, which is to say that a study based on 100 people is less convincing than one based on thousands. But what happens when the entire population you're studying is fewer than 60 animals? Welcome to the world of marine scientist, Dr. Rochelle Constantine. Yeah, the Maui dolphin is the world's rarest marine dolphin. So it's just a little, little, oh, about one and a half metre dolphins, so it's tiny, and it's only found along the west coast of the North Island, and there's 54 animals over one year of age left, which is, uh, yeah, a little bit disturbing. Yeah, it's pretty tiny data set, but it's it's kind of interesting, because we, we started doing these genetic abundance estimates um, back in 2010, and the numbers have fluctuated around this sort of 50 to 60 for, for, for the last 11 years, which is oddly comforting. <laughs> They're not in freefall, but boy, there's not a lot of dolphins out there. The solution? A custom-built drone powered by artificial intelligence, which has been trained to identify and then track the Maui dolphin. I was there to witness its first successful trial flight this time last year. 
two, one. We're good, engine's on, climbing. Now we're accelerating. And we're off to waypoint one. So the, the drone we've got, it's a five meter wingspan drone. It flies for up to six hours at um, speeds of up to 160 kilometers per hour. And so it can cover a lot of the coast in a short space of time, um, which means we can finally survey this coast. Um, we used to have a plane, an aeroplane in New Zealand that, that was sort of equipped for doing these sort of science surveys so it had bubble windows so you could look under the plane and, and be able to get good coverage. But that got sold to an Australian company a few years back. So New Zealand actually doesn't have a, a survey-ready plane and we don't have enough money and enough boats to be able to survey the coast. So this drone is... Um, at least for now, our, our best shot at, at getting a, an idea of where these dolphins go winter and summer. Why do we need to know where these dolphins go, you know, 12 months of the year? The dolphins have different um, habitat use. So there's different things that drive where they are in summer and winter. For um, these dolphins, we suspect, uh, one, it's related to prey availability, so the fish that they like to eat, um, but also it's likely driven by some temperature gradients as well and turbidity. And and so we want to know when they do disperse, if they are going offshore, are they still protected by the West Coast North Island Marine um, mammal sanctuary that was put in place uh, that was established back in 2008 um, and in 2020 last year it was actually expanded much further north and south and then further offshore to manage the risk of bycatch death from um, uh, from fisheries but but if these dolphins are going no seven nautical miles or 12 nautical miles offshore then they are starting to get into an area where they may interact with fishing uh, fishing vessels so just looking at the, the data for a second, the, um, the the 54 dolphins, are you concerned that the, the 63, now 54, does that represent a, a definite 10% drop in the dolphin numbers or is that just the within the, you know, the variability of it? Yeah, it's within the variability. So, um, yeah, I was pretty disappointed to see it, it announced as, you know, a 14% drop. Um, back in 2010-11, the estimate was 55 dolphins. In 1516, um, that was 63 dolphins. Uh, it's now 54. But the error bars, so the confidence, how confident we are in that sort of number, you know, based on the method that we use, so the statistical sort of variance around it, it's actually 48 to 66 dolphins. So this number that we have now is roughly the same as the numbers that we've had about, you know, over the past 11 years. And I, you know, even though it's a really tiny number, there's something really interesting about that for us is that it's possible that, um, that, that you know, the biggest threat to them, which was fisheries bycatch, which has been removed for some time now, that maybe these dolphins are just in a holding pattern. You know, they're not, there's not enough of them to increase, but they're not in free fall. Coming in, we're safe for landing. Success. <laughs> While the Maui are its primary target, with so few needles in the haystack, the drone has plenty of spare time to gather other information on its flights. 
as we fly along, we record everything we can see on the ocean. So it picks up um, whether we see dolphins. We've done uh, machine learning, use machine learning tools to train um, artificial intelligence to detect the dolphins. And that works, oh, it's, it's, I think it's around 96 plus percent accuracy now. We'll always detect these dolphins in the water, which is, is awesome. But also when we're filming, we're actually filming the water colour. We'll be able to determine the turbidity. And the nice thing is we're now also, we've trained it to, detect other species of common dolphins and gannets and various other seabirds as well. So we're building up our repertoire because the idea is for this drone is that it's not just about Maui dolphins, it's about you know, actually monitoring our coastal waters to understand all the marine species that are in there. All around, it's actually been a really positive experience. It sort of brought, you know, different government agencies together and and um, to, to sort of think about these new ways of of collecting data on space, you know, on on these remote spaces and hard to get to spaces that we actually New Zealand just hasn't invested in because it's so expensive to do the work. So we're we're pretty excited about it. And one of the other things that's sort of um, been really important in this conversation, so Maui 63 has been to make all the data open access. So. Um, all of the, the footage that we take, you know, once we've checked that it's all okay, we'll be putting it um, in the cloud and then making that actually accessible. You'll, you'll have to apply to get access to it, but it's just so that we know who's using it. But it means that it's sort of people can use it for, for research purposes or, you know, fishing industry can use it or NGOs can use it, conservation groups can use it, local communities can use it to, to advance our understanding of the space. One of the biggest issues I wanted to clear up was how to pronounce data. A lot of scientists I know say data, which makes me nervous that I'm in the wrong. I need an expert opinion, someone who deals with some of the biggest data sets, data sets that there are in science. I think I say both, actually. <laughs> Don't have a preference. D- data probably more often than not, but whatever. Okay, well, that's good because I, I went into this thinking for some reason that all the fancy scientists and mathematicians I knew uh, say data, and I'd always said data, and I thought that, and it turns out that apparently data is weirdly the American way of saying it, uh, and data is the more proper English way, which seems the opposite, oh. right? But I don't know. Oh, well, I, I guess, yeah, the singular is datum and plural data, I guess. So I can see where that comes from, sort of from the Latin, I suppose. Um, but look, anyway. <laughs> no, no, this is all very, this, this is part of it. Hey, we're recording now. This is part of the, uh, this is part of the discussion. We've got to get our, we've got to get our facts right to start with, right? Oh, oh dear. <laughs> Professor James Renwick is a climate scientist at Victoria University and a contributor to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. If Rochelle Constantine's challenge is only having 54 dolphins to work with, Professor Renwick's issues are at the other end of the spectrum. When a modelling centre that forecasts the, the weather for the next two weeks, when it starts its model run, it has to make an estimate of the state of the atmosphere, the, the weather around the world. And it would use over a million observations from satellites, um, tens of thousands of surface observations at weather stations around the world, um, at least hundreds of ship observations and hundreds of balloon flights from Met services all over the world. But the total number of data points is in the millions, and that's several times a day, every day. So the actual observations of the, of the weather and the state of the atmosphere especially are, 
are huge. Um, they, they, all of these observations are collated into big, big data sets of global analyses of the state of climate. So you, every few hours per day, every day for the last 40 years, let's say, you, you can look at the state of the atmosphere at the surface of the earth and at all these levels up into the upper atmosphere. So that's, you know, gigabytes getting on for terabytes of, of data. Uh, so, so there's a, a truckload of information out there. But often what you're doing is you take your measure of what's happening with El Nino and you compare that to one of these gigantic data sets and see whether it can tell you you know, how, how does the, the sea ice change or how do the winds over the Southern Ocean change when you have an El Nino event versus a La Nina event? The size of this this data was such that NIWA had to basically put in, is, is it New Zealand's biggest supercomputer? Yes, it is. Well, you know, people have arguments about things like that. <laughs> it, it is, um, but, and it's, yeah, well, I'm hesitating because you, you can have the sort of two approaches to what you might call a supercomputer. One is you buy a lot of PCs or laptops, sort of, or lots of chips, and you hook them up in a way that you can talk to all of them at once. Lash them, toge- is, lash them together kind of thing. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Um, and that's these days, that's what all supercomputers are. It's just a question of how you lash them together. And I guess the, the computer system Niwa has has a very sophisticated lashing system. The communications between the chips in their computer are better than anything I'm aware of anywhere else in the country. And that makes it fast and that makes it really useful for really big computing problems like modelling the global climate for the the next 100 years or so. But it's the ability for the bits of the computer to talk to each other and, you know, give you an answer fast that I think the NIWA supercomputer Wins. I mean, the reason that I'm looking at this topic is because I've seen a rise in people online on social media suddenly becoming not just armchair epidemiologists, but with that <laughs> armchair sort of statisticians or um, da- da- you know being able to analyse data. You would have seen the same thing, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, and that kind of thing's been around in climate science for a pretty long time. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say this is this is this is new to probably the epidemiologists, but for you as a as a climate scientist, oh, people have been making their own assumptions based on data or or questioning the modelling for a long time, haven't they? They certainly have. Yeah, and that'll probably carry on forever. <laughs> <laughs> if you were going to sit down with a Michael Baker and say. Michael, look. Let me tell you a story or two about you know how this works. What sort of what sort of stuff would you say? How, where do people where do people get it right? Where do people get it wrong when it comes to you know amateurs looking and taking their own um, stab at, at the information? A lot of analysis of data, whether it's in climate or um, medicine, whatever. You know, you can do a lot with fairly simple things, just taking averages or looking at trends or something. You you, you can deduce a lot. And it's, it's not very high-powered. If you've got Excel, you can probably crunch some numbers effectively. It's when you've got to interpret the data first. It's, it's not so much doing some analysis. It's, it's more about getting your data ready to analyse. And I know in, in climate research, there's all sorts of traps for young players in terms of observations of climate over a long time, because the observations we've taken have not been designed for a record of the climate. It's more been about the weather again, the weather forecast. So there's lots of spurious trends and jumps and artefacts and 
time series that have nothing to do with the climate, they're there of some change in the way observations were made. And learning how to deal with those before you draw your conclusions about whether things are warming up or not, that's that's the tricky part. And same story with some of these big data sets, you know, the, the satellite, the so-called satellite record, satellite temperatures, which is supposedly some people would claim are the best record in the world, and I'm not so sure about that. Each satellite has different characteristics. Over time, the orbits of the satellites decay, and you've got to take account of that properly. And Man, it's way too complicated for me. <laughs> and if you don't know about any of that, you just sort of take things at face value. You have to understand how the measurements were made, what they mean, and, and how different time periods match up before you can really do any kind of science with those numbers. A classic example is temperatures measured in Wellington, actually. Um, over 100 years ago, those measurements were made down at sea level by the by the water. And then the Met Service building, the first Met Service building was built up at the top of the cable car up the hill. And it's about 100 metres higher than um, sea level. So that automatically, because temperatures decrease with height, that meant the temperatures were suddenly 0.7 or 0.8 of a degree colder than they were down at the water level. And if you look at the overall record going back to the beginning of last century, you see this sudden drop in the 1920s and then the, the warming continues. And if, if you look at it over 100 years, you think, oh, there hasn't really been much warming. But <laughs> that's because there's this artificial cooling that happened <laughs> in the middle of the record. If you don't understand that, you'll think, oh, yeah, maybe global warming's not happening in Wellington because it doesn't show up in these numbers here. From from the recent sort of sudden interest around the pandemic, the recent sudden interest in people pouring over tables and sample sizes and R values and all this sort of stuff, is there a positive, do you think, that people are starting to wrap their head around how, how this all data informs science? If it enables people to feel more comfortable with looking at data and, and doing statistical analysis or so trying to work out what's going on from looking at, at um, from data looking at data then that's great because that's that's how science operates and it's sort of evidence we need for evidence-based uh, policy development so the more data the better I suppose provided <laughs> provided people understand what they're looking at and and how to uh, how to think about it with that note of caution all three scientists agree the pandemic could leave us with a better understanding of the role of data in scientific research and why it matters. Rochelle Constantine. It's been kind of exciting as a scientist because, I, you know, I do a lot of genetics work, listening to people talking about PCRs and R-values and flattening the curves and all of these scientific terms that we use a lot within our, our work. Here they are um, out in general public. And I think that's awesome, that sort of public understanding of just important basic science concepts that is really neat. And um, it's making science meaningful for people and accessible for people. And with some good science communication, you know, you can actually see how people will really lean in and be part of the conversation and part of the solution. Thanks, Damien. That was Damien Christie of Aotearoa Science Agency speaking with Dr. Andrew Chen, a research fellow at Koi Tu, the Centre for Informed Futures at the University of Auckland. Damien also spoke with Associate Professor Rochelle Constantine of the Marine Mammal Ecology Group 
in the University of Auckland, and with Professor James Renwick, a climate scientist from Victoria University of Wellington. This episode was produced by Damien Christie. Sound engineering was by Ethan Alderson-Hughes and William Saunders. Tim Walken is executive producer. Keep up to date with Our Changing World by following the show. And you can do this for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworlds for photos and links, for access to our huge back catalogue of episodes, and to sign up to our monthly newsletter. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Now, between Bird of the Year and the Fave Plant Competition, if you're into conservation, tis the season to vote. And we would also like your vote. Our Changing World is entered into the Listener's Choice category of the New Zealand Podcast Awards, and voting is happening right now. Visit nzpodcastawards.com, click on the big blue button, and drop a vote for Our Changing World. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Listener's Choice.